You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, as I said last week, there are things that I presume as a preacher. I presume that all the saints of Covenant Baptist Church love the Lord and want to obey Him and are grieved at the thought of offending Him and yet mightily battle against the corruption of the flesh. I presume that all of us, like Paul, often find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do and not doing the things that we want to do. I presume that all of us, like Paul, often have the desire to do what is good, but not the ability to carry it out. I presume that all of us, like Paul, daily see indwelling sin rearing its head in our lives. We are all engaged in an ongoing internal war between our spirit, and our flesh. This war is often hard. It can be disheartening. It can even be heartbreaking. For me, I aim to preach accordingly. As for Paul, he puts words to our Christian experience in Romans chapter 7. We thank God for these words. When they're read and when they're expounded, we feel them in our souls. As we acknowledged last week, every one of us, as we hear these words, we know and we say, he's writing about me. When it comes to the experience of the Christian life, this side of the resurrection, truer words have never been written than Romans chapter 7. And we're going to consider the final five verses of this wonderful chapter in our time together this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I go ahead and invite you to open them up to Romans chapter 7. We'll be looking pointedly this morning at verses 21 to 25. As we always like to do as we're opening to any passage of Scripture, we want to understand the lay of the land and where we are in the book in which we find ourselves. You will remember that back in chapter 6 and verse 14... Paul tells us that sin will not have dominion over us. Fact. Book it. Own it. It will not have dominion over the saints. And this is because, he says, we are not under the law, but under grace. He begins to further explain that truth. Like, how can that be? That sin will not have dominion over us because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace He begins to unpack that more, beginning in Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. We've considered in weeks gone by, from Romans 7, 4, how in Christ we died to the law, so that we might now not belong to the law, but belong to Jesus. And this, belonging to Christ, is how we bear fruit for God. We considered from Romans 7 and verse 5 that while we were still in our natural, fallen, corrupt state, the law only served to exacerbate our sinful passions. 
And then in Romans 7 and verse 6, Paul wrote that we have been released from the law, having died to that which used to hold us captive. And that freedom from the law, that death to the law, has occurred for us through our union with Christ in his death. The result of all of this is that we now serve God in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Now, all of that that I have just said raises a significant question. Is the law good then? If all of that is true, if the law only served to exacerbate our sinful passions, if we needed to be set free from the law in order to actually serve God in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, if we needed to be set free from the law in order to actually serve God and bear fruit for Him, is the law bad? Because it sounds like it might be. But then Paul, as we considered last week, beginning in Romans 7, 7, he answers that question emphatically, indignantly, by no means. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is sin in us. Paul begins to then write of himself. Through the law, he says, he came to know sin as sin. When the law came for Paul with the power of the Holy Spirit and his eyes were opened to the law's standard at a spiritual level, everything changed. He saw the depth of his corruption and the depth of his ruin. All of his legal hopes were destroyed. It is through the law that Paul became convinced that he was a sinner what he wrote. The law is holy and righteous and good, he says. It shows sin to be sin, and through its commandments, sin becomes sinful beyond measure. That is the first and greatest use of the law. Paul goes on. He says, now we know that the law is spiritual. What he means by that is that it requires spiritual, heavenly righteousness. And the law is from God himself. But we are of the flesh, sold under sin. That occurred, by the way, at the fall of Adam. Our old nature, the old man, it was put to death by Christ on the cross. But it has not been completely done away with yet. We have received a new nature via our union with Christ, via the new birth that God has granted us, and yet we carry around the corpse of the old man with us all the time. There is that internal war between our spirit and our flesh that we all feel, that we all live every day. And Paul, as an apostle, knew it too. He felt it too. He lived it too. And he wrote about it. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand my own actions, he says. I don't do what I want to do. And I end up doing what I hate. In my inner man, I want to honor God. But sin still dwells in my flesh. Though I want to do good, the sin that dwells in me results in me doing evil. 
We've all been there. Let's look now to God's Word, beginning in Romans 7 and verse 21. Listen now, as I read, this is the Word of God. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan this morning is to consider the text in three points, and then I'm going to offer three additional points of reflection and application, and then a brief conclusion. I'll try to make it plain where we are as we make our way through. So let's look to the text, point one of three, a summary of the internal war, a summary of the internal war. We considered that war last week, but Paul's going to kind of put a bow on it for us in verses 21 to 23. You can put your eyes on verse 21 where Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So our fallen nature, our flesh, is inclined toward all evil. We know this. And this inclination is so strong and so permanent, this side of the grave, that Paul refers to it as a law. John Calvin wrote on this verse that while the faithful strive after what is good, they find in themselves a certain law which exercises a tyrannical power. For a vicious propensity, adverse to and resisting the law of God, is implanted in their very marrow and in their very bones. This is our experience. We want to honor the Lord. Amen? We do. We often, by God's grace, maybe in a time like the Lord's Day gathering, we find ourselves motivated and stirred up to obey, to go and pursue righteousness and flee from sin. And we're excited about doing that. And then, as if from nowhere, the desires and the cravings and the frustrations of the flesh explode from within. And sometimes they're so strong, it feels in our experience like we can't shake them. It's like they have hooks in us, won't let go. This law, this principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, that Paul writes of, is a source of much grief and discouragement for the saints. Perhaps more than anything else, it is this law that disturbs our peace and our joy. It unsettles us and results in all kinds of doubts and fears. Only the saints of God know this. Then in verses 22 and 23, Paul goes on. You can put your eyes on verse 22 to begin. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he says. When Paul says he delights in the law of God in his inner being, he's referring to the regenerate part of him, his new nature. 
That inner being is a term that's unique to Paul, and he only uses it to refer to believers. Consider, for example, the words of Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus, and he says these words, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your what? Inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have the strength with all the saints to comprehend the love of Christ for you. This is how Paul uses that language of inner man. It's the new nature that Christians have been given by God. So it is in that inner man, that new nature, that Paul says, I delight in the law of God. This is perhaps obvious to you. But only a regenerate person, only a born-again person, only a person who has been united to Christ and made alive with Christ by God delights in the law of God. This is not something that is natural to man as fallen human beings. Only a person who has been brought from death to life, who's been given eyes to see, who's had his ears dug out, who's had her heart of stone removed, who's been given a new heart, who's been given God's own spirit. Only a person who has been justified and forgiven and absolved of guilt could ever write words, I delight in the law of God in my inner man. It is a grace from the Lord and nobody rejoices in something that is their death sentence. Only those who have been forgiven of their sins under the law. Only those who have been absolved of their guilt under the law. Only those who have been declared just on the basis of Christ alone could ever look to the law and say, it is good. But Paul goes on. He delights in the law of God in his inner being. But I see in my members, right, that's his fallen nature, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Members means the unregenerate part of Paul, his old nature. The law of his mind clearly is referring to his new nature. The law that wages war from his members against his mind is what causes him to not do what he wants to do. This is again a description of the internal war between the spirit and the flesh that is the experience of every believer. It is constant and it is irreconcilable. Paul says that the law in his members wages war against the law of his mind and makes him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his flesh. This is what happens to you and happens to me every time that we have an evil thought. Every time that evil thought dwells. Every time we are overcome by sin. This is why we're kept from doing what we want to do. Galatians 5, 17. This is why we don't do what we want, but often do the very things we hate. Romans 7, 15. This is why we don't do the good we want, but the evil we don't want is what we keep on doing. Romans 7, 19. A summary of the internal war. You experience this war every day. So do I. So did the apostle. So have all of the saints of all time. There is encouragement for us. It's coming. Point two. 
the cry of every believer. Point two, the cry of every believer. We're going to look at verse 24 and the first part of verse 25 for the next few moments. You see what all of this leads Paul to cry out. I trust you have felt this. You perhaps have cried these same words countless times in your life. He says, wretched man that I am. Who is going to save me? Who's going to deliver me from this, this war? Again, observe that Paul is writing as a regenerate man. This was not Paul's cry before he had encountered the risen Christ. It was not. Before that, you remember what his assessment of himself was. It was completely different. A Hebrew of Hebrews, right? As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You realize, righteous man that I am was Paul's boast. But now, wretched man that I am is his cry. That's the new birth. When the veil of self-delusion was lifted for Paul, he saw himself to be a blasphemer and a persecutor of God's own people. He saw himself as a self-righteous man filled with unbelief and pride. This is why, as an apostle, he'll write elsewhere and refer to himself as the chief of sinners. He had come to see himself that way. So too for us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the law, believers have their eyes opened. Opened so that we now discern the corruption of our hearts and the death that comes from that corruption. Only a regenerate person feels the wretchedness that Paul expresses here. Those who are unregenerate may feel misery. They may feel anxiety and fear and even Dread about the grave and what lies beyond it. That's true. Unregenerate people may desire to escape punishment. But consider this. Deep down, the desire of the unregenerate person is to indulge the cravings of the flesh. Not to be freed from them. What Paul writes of here is lament and a feeling of wretchedness over the evil that lies within. And only the saints feel that. Verse 25, the first part of it. Paul cries out again. This time with thanksgiving to God through Christ. The sense of what Paul is writing in these verses is this. I am a wretched man. Who is there who could ever deliver me from my condition? And then he pauses. And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus can and will deliver me. Beloved, when we die, 
we will be freed from the evil of our fallen nature. And this is a consolation to the saints now as we battle against our own sinfulness. Though we will not be freed from our corruption and though we will not be freed from sinning in this life, a day is coming. You know it. We sing of it. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. One day, beloved, we will go to sleep And we will be awakened to behold the Savior. And that will mark our final deliverance from this war and this struggle that is our experience every day now. Point three. Paul's conclusion to everything he's written is that we are saints and yet sinners. Let me say that again. Paul's conclusion is that we are saints and and yet sinners. So the final sentence of the chapter serves as a sort of concluding statement. It's kind of like an epilogue. It pulls everything together that Paul had written, especially beginning in verse 14. Paul says, you put your eyes there. So then I myself, he's he's talking about himself. He's not talking about some other hypothetical person, right? As some foolishly try to insert here. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. With my inner being, I serve the law of God. In my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul understood that as long as he would be on the earth, his flesh would be defiled and corrupt. He confesses that in this life, he would be inclined in his flesh toward all evil. Blessed is the one who shares Paul's understanding. In our inner man, the law of God has been written on our hearts, and we delight in it. In our flesh... The law of sin rages, and we are sometimes taken captive by it. This is how we must see ourselves in this life. If you don't, if we don't see ourselves like this in this life, friend, you will be knocked to and fro. You will be knocked off the horse at every turn. No child of God will ever get beyond this reality in this life. With Paul, we understand that our primary disposition is to serve God, yet the old man is still with us. With Paul, we seek to put off the old man and live like we are born again, live like who we are now, and we strive with Paul to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Like Paul, 
we are at the same time justified and sinner. We are righteous. We are saints because we have been united to Christ by faith. And his righteousness is now counted as ours. And we are sinners because we do not ourselves fulfill the law. And we still have many, many sinful passions. In every believer, in every child of God, in every saint of the Lord, there is sin and grace. There is flesh and spirit. There is the law of sin in our members and the law of our mind. You know this as well as I do. Even within the church, those who oppose God's law and God's gospel will twist and manipulate these truths that we're considering right now. Some will manipulate and twist these truths in order to justify sin. And many will manipulate these truths to undermine and obscure the gospel. But as far as we are concerned, this is the truth of God, these words that Paul writes, and they are the experience of every believer. I want us to move on now to reflect some and seek to apply this text to our hearts and our minds. So I've got three points of reflection and application. Number one, I want us to consider briefly together the fact that we do delight in God's law. You do. So that's point one. You delight in God's law. Be encouraged that you do. So I'm holding in my hand our own catechism here. This is the closest thing that we will probably ever get to preaching with a prop at CBC. So feel fortunate that you're here today to behold it. I'm just going to read just a little bit from our own catechism. Listen to this. How we understand the law. And I know that in your heart, in my heart, we hear it and we say, Amen, that is good, and I want to live that way. Just listen. What is the first commandment? Answer. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? Answer. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Your heart says, may it be. It's what I want. May it be. Moving on, just a selection here. What is the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does this mean? Answer. We should fear and love God, and so we should not use his name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive. But in every time of need, call upon him, pray to him, praise him, and give thanks. The saints of God say, Amen. You delight in that. So do I. What is the sixth commandment? Answer. The sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. What does this mean? Answer. We should fear and love God, and so we should not endanger our neighbor's life, nor cause him any harm, but help and befriend him in every necessity of life. And you say, I want to live like that. That's good. 
What is the ninth commandment? Answer, the ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does this mean? Answer, we should fear and love God, and so we should not tell lies about our neighbor, nor betray, slander, or defame him, but should apologize for him, speak well of him, and interpret charitably all that he does. And your prayer is the same as mine. Lord, give us grace that we might live like that, because that is obviously good and right and just. Beloved, you delight in God's law in your inner man. Be encouraged that you do. You did not produce that in you. God has given that to you. So when you read Paul's words, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, you can say, brother, so do I. And yet I find myself fighting the same battle that you did, Paul. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who is our deliverer, right? Point two of reflection and application. We put no confidence in the flesh. Point two, we put no confidence in the flesh. This passage, Romans 7, destroys any notion of goodness or glory in the flesh. Even the godliest among us, when it comes to his or her flesh, will only find wretchedness. And will only find misery. And will only find death. It's very important for our understanding that though we've been given a new nature, the corpse of the old nature is with us, it will be with us until the grave, and this is the piece that's so pivotal. The corpse of the old nature is not made holy. It is our new nature, our inner man, that is nourished and strengthened and grown by the Lord through His Spirit and His means of grace. It is not the flesh that's made more holy. It is the inner man that is grown and nourished and strengthened and built up by God Himself, by the work of the Spirit of Christ through His means of grace. Important implication. Again, if we don't have this understanding, we're going to be knocked off the horse all the time. Because the corruption of the flesh remains, and because the flesh is not made holy, the battle against it does not go away. And here's the kicker. The battle against the flesh may be just as intense in 10 years or 20 years from now as it is today. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our inner man is sanctified. We are changed. We are grown. We are matured. And that makes a difference in our lives. Amen. But to think that as we are sanctified, well, this war just gets easier is not necessarily the case. We might wrongly think that my battle against, you fill in the blank, my battle against lust or pride or anger or addiction, you pick. It's just going to go away one day because I'll be sanctified beyond it. There will come a time when I won't have to fight 
the way I have to fight today. Beloved, this side of the resurrection, we will never be sanctified beyond the internal war because the flesh remains and the flesh is always corrupt. We will be sanctified in our spirit. We will grow in grace. We will learn more and more to trust Christ and look to him in the midst of the fight. We will be strengthened in our inner man to know the love of Christ for us, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. We'll be strengthened in our inner man to all the more delight in his law. All of that is true. God be praised. But the fight against the flesh will not be over until the grave or the return of our Savior. That is not to discourage you. That is to speak with honesty from the Scripture so that we know what we can expect, even as children of God. Every day, we resist the flesh as we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Point three of application and reflection. This is a question. I don't know if that bothers any of the note-takers in the room. If it does, my apologies. What does a right understanding of the law and the gospel and the sinner-saint reality produce in us? I'll repeat the question. What does a right understanding of the law and the gospel and a right understanding of the sinner-saint reality produce in us? So I mean this individually for us as believers, and I mean this collectively for us as a church. So you can think and hear this on both of those planes. First thing we can say, it produces humility. We don't get it twisted. We never could earn anything. Having been justified now, it still is the case that we are not going to earn anything in terms of our standing before God. The project of the saint is not now to turn himself into the kind of person God would have been happy to save originally. It can't be done. We are always debtors to grace. We are always debtors to mercy. No one will be justified by works of the law before or after conversion. It's all of Christ. He's it. And he is our only hope. A right understanding of the law and the gospel and of the sinner saint reality drives those truths home. And we're humble. Next, it produces vigilance. It produces vigilance. How so, brother? Glad you asked. When we realize individually, I am far more wicked than I ever care to admit. When we will acknowledge that there are so many things that go on in our hearts and minds on a daily basis that we would be horrified for others to know. When we talk like this, and when we acknowledge these things, and we confess these things, and we live like that with one another, it helps us to be vigilant together. We're all the more watchful because we know our frames. 
we know what we're capable of. We can live honestly and openly together with discretion, but it enables us to lock arms with our brothers and sisters and to talk about what's going on in here. Brother, you should know this about me. Sister, you should know this about me. Here's what I was thinking yesterday. A right understanding of these truths that Paul outlines in Romans 7 produces vigilance. Next, it produces compassion. This is a big one. It produces compassion. We're not looking down on other people. We're not thinking, man, everybody else just needs to get it together. Need to get it in gear. If they, if this church, if people in this church were as disciplined as me, it would be banging in here, man, because we would be crushing the Christian life. Only God knows what kind of fruit we could bear if everybody was like me. None of that nonsense goes on with a right understanding of these truths. Now, none of us would ever talk like that in public, but we think things like that to our shame in private. We do. We realize, with an understanding of Romans 7 and the truth contained therein, that just like we battle things that we did not sign up for, so do our brothers and sisters. We understand that just as we struggle against things that cause us to lament our frames, so do our brothers and sisters. And our instinct, here's a big one, our instinct is to cover the shame of our brothers and sisters, not expose it. And we bear with one another in patience because the Lord has been so patient and so merciful with us. So not only do a right understanding of the law and the gospel and sinner saint reality produce humility, vigilance, and compassion, one more piece I want to talk about. I have the pastors of the church maybe pointedly in mind on, on this one, but I know similar things have occurred in your relationships with one another. I don't really have a word to describe it. I'm just going to talk about it. I trust that will be fine. So as a pastor, and I know some of the other elders of the church would say the same, there are times when people come to talk to their elders. And they walk in the office or we sit down at the table and they won't make eye contact. And they're kind of squirming around in the seat. They're ashamed. It's clear. Maybe they're already in tears. They're going to say something that is grieving to them, heartbreaking to them. And maybe based on their past experiences, maybe in another church, they expect that what they're about to say will make their pastor or their pastors recoil in horror. And then when they confess it, though we're grieved and our hearts break, rather than recoiling in horror, we lean in. Whether that's a pastor and a congregant or member to member, beloved, that posture will bear some fruit over years and decades. It will. As one of the elders to 
the dear members of this congregation. Know that your pastors understand your frames. Because we battle the very same things. And we are capable of the very same things. And we desire to walk with you this way, looking to Christ always. In everything that I've just been describing, there is a collective sense of our need of Christ that knits hearts together in a way that nothing else can. And may the Lord continue to do that in our midst. Just a few words of conclusion now. I want to take my cue from Paul in verses 24 and 25, where he puts a bow effectively on this material. So this is my attempt to do that. My conclusion to the Romans 7 material. As believers, we like Paul, we lament our sin. We don't want to do it. Or maybe when we sin, we're bothered by the fact that we're not lamenting it like we should. That's real. But still, the point is we're perplexed and troubled in our souls over our sin. Sometimes when we give in to sin, it really does feel as though we've been taken captive. Like what happened? It's as though we've been carried away in one sense against our will into doing or saying this thing. Where did this come from? This is our condition now. And we don't want it to be this way. The cry of the Apostle Paul is the cry of every believer. Wretched man, wretched woman that I am. Who will deliver me? We cry this because we have become convinced by the Holy Spirit through the law that sin is sin. We cry this because we have come to delight in God's law and we don't want to break it. We cry this because we have come to love the Lord and are grieved by the thought of offending Him. Every person who knows the plague of his or her own heart knows that in Romans 7, Paul is writing of the day-by-day experience as a believer. But Paul doesn't just cry out about his wretchedness. He doesn't just cry out for deliverance. He also cries in thanksgiving to God that Jesus is his deliverer. Beloved, because of Christ, take heart that though your sins are many, and you lament them, you grieve them, you're troubled over them. Because of Christ, God will not remember them. And that is not because he has amnesia. It is because they have been dealt with. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jesus is our deliverer. Not only did he pay for our sin, not only has our sin been dealt with and removed from us, we have been credited with Christ's own invincible righteousness so that we will never face wrath or judgment. Beloved, you 
are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. After this life is over, our souls will be taken to Jesus, our Savior and our head, and our struggle will be over. And one day, our bodies will be raised by the power of Christ and reunited with our souls, and we will be made like Him. Incorruptible. Let that word hit in your heart in light of what we've been considering. One day, we will be incorruptible, imperishable. We will never again say, I don't understand my own actions. Amen? We won't. We will never again say, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Never again. We will never again say, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I don't want is what I keep on doing. Never again. Thanks be to God indeed for that deliverance, for that promise. And so now, beloved, between this day and that day. We do not look to ourselves. We look to the Savior. The evil one and also our own consciences regularly say to us, you've got way too much sin. And you don't have enough faith. Certainly don't have enough love. You're, no way are you repentant enough. You're kind of a miserable wretch. You certainly don't have the joy of a child of God. And your hold of Christ, if it's even there at all, is weak. All of that's true. This is why we thank God for the Holy Spirit who works in an entirely different way. It is the ministry of the Spirit of God to take our gaze off of ourselves and fix it on the Savior. The Holy Spirit confirms to us that we are, in and of ourselves, in fact, nothing. But that Christ is all in all. He reminds us that it is not our hold of Jesus that saves us. It's Jesus. He reminds us that it's not our joy in Christ that saves us. It's Christ. He reminds us that it's not even our faith in Jesus that saves us. Because faith is only an instrument. It is Jesus' blood and righteousness that saves So, beloved, look to Him. Because you struggle and I struggle so mightily against the flesh, look to Christ. Look to Him now. Look to Him in just a few minutes when we come to this table. This table is about Him. It's not about you. It's about what He has accomplished. It's about His faithfulness to you. Look to Him when we come to this table in just a moment. Look to Him this afternoon. Look to Him when you lay down tonight. Look to Him when you wake up in the morning.
because he's greater than our sin. He is greater than our flesh. And even when our hearts condemn us, he's greater than our hearts too. With the Apostle Paul, we cry, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's now go to him in prayer.